If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Attention all listeners on this frequency, stand by for an important announcement. Welcome to Medic to Medic Podcast, the weekly podcast for EMS providers, EMS leaders, EMS medical directors, and others involved in or those who have an interest in emergency medical services. Ladies and gentlemen, here's your host, Steve Cohen. Coming from the Ferndale Medic to Medic Podcast Studios, it's another episode of Medic to Medic Podcast. Hi, it's Steve Cohen. You can reach me at Medic to Medic Podcast at gmail.com. You can download this episode as well as others at Speaker, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and of course, Apple Podcasts. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Chris Martin-Gill, who serves as the Chief of the Division of EMS, EMS Fellowship Director and Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. He also serves as the Medical Command Physician at the UPMC Medical Communications Center and provides ground-based medical support for national and international commercial airlines. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to have uh, Chris on and to talk about in-flight emergencies and how he got involved as well as some other things. So Chris, welcome to Medic to Medic Podcast. First, how is my hometown of Pittsburgh doing? Pittsburgh is uh, doing well this time of year in the summer, and uh, we're enjoying, uh, uh, hoping that the weather gets a little cooler and the start of Steeler season, uh, which is always something to look forward to in Pittsburgh. Yeah, I'm very excited. Uh, I got lucky enough to watch the preseason game uh, last week against the, the Seattle Seahawks, and it's good to see the black and gold. I'm excited. Uh, the Steelers have been on quite a bit nationally, so I've been lucky enough to catch a whole bunch of their games. It's kind of interesting, especially at 10 o'clock in the morning when I'm watching football on Sunday. Chris, tell us a little, a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I started my uh, medical career in EMS, uh, which I've continued to be involved uh, in since. And I uh, started off as an EMT and then a paramedic in the late 90s in uh, Virginia. And um, got to be a paramedic through a college and medical school all of which I completed at the University of Virginia. Then I moved to Pittsburgh uh, with my wife to 
uh, do the residency in emergency medicine here at uh, UPMC and the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, and we have a great uh, EMS system, a great EMS program, working not only with uh, City of Pittsburgh Borough of EMS, but Step Medevac, our uh, critical care transport service, and uh, a lot of surrounding EMS agencies uh, that we collaborate with very closely. In addition to that, UPMC is involved with uh, ground-based medical support for a number of commercial airlines. Uh, and together, all of that uh, involvement in EMS medical direction and, and uh, out-of-hospital care is a variety of work that a number of us EMS physicians and medical directors work in. So I stayed in Pittsburgh to do an EMS fellowship um, that I uh, uh, completed in 2010. And since then, I've been uh, part of our uh, medical staff and in our division of EMS that I now have a chance to work more involved with. What got your interest in medicine? I, uh, early on, uh, really uh, had an interest in actually providing EMS care. It was the work that I did as an EMT right out of high school. In fact, I hadn't quite finished high school. Uh, like the story of so many other EMS personnel that are out there, you know, getting uh, involved in, in out-of-hospital care so early. Uh, and I've been doing uh, EMS work continuously uh, since then. Uh, and, uh, you know, being able to work in an, in an environment uh, where you need to think quickly, do a lot of things uh, without uh, the resources of a hospital setting. Uh, is really a unique practice uh, and, uh, you know, so unique that now for almost a decade, uh, EMS medicine has been considered its own subspecialty in medicine. So now, uh, you know, physicians such as I get to be board certified in EMS medicine and get to, you know, work in this uh, world of EMS and, and medical direction in a way uh, that um, that is unique and special uh, and, and uh, really closely tied to all the EMS personnel out there. Why'd you become an EMT? What was the spark? Yeah, I, you know, I, uh, I now hate the, uh, the uh, simple line of I want to help people. Uh, but, uh, you know, what I was uh, particularly intrigued with, I think, if uh, things, uh, you know, beyond the first day is, is really the environment that is unique. Working in a, in a setting with limited resources where you have to act quickly. Uh, and be able to um, uh, take care of patients with really what you bring to that environment. And being able to think in that way uh, is uh, special. And, uh, and, and I really enjoyed it uh, from the earliest time of my training where, you know, where I had uh, a different knowledge base uh, all the way through uh, quite a bit of research and medical direction, you know, as I'm involved in now. A lot of us got into it because of the lights and siren. I don't know about the helping people, but no, I'm just kidding. I, I think we all have some focus on trying to help people but for me I had no direction I mean, my dad's heart attack got me to where I am today because his uh, tech in the step down unit was when he had his heart attack you spent uh, seven to ten days in the hospital way back when uh, and his uh, his his tech was an EMT and my dad just you know talks to everybody and and Ed told him told my dad that he was an EMT in Swissville and my, that's my, my son loves the show Emergency. That's really how I got really interested in, in paramedicine was because of the show Emergency, like some of us in my era. That a lot of us uh, felt that way. Were there any memorable calls? Yeah, er, early on in, uh, you know, in, in my experience, certainly uh, being a young uh, paramedic uh, in training, not quite released as we would uh, describe it at the time, uh, you know, showing up to, to certain traumas, uh, in the helicopter on the scene, whisking people away and, and those types of things that I now get to experience from the other side. 
certainly was memorable uh, at the time and, and helped, uh, you know, fuel my interest. The other piece, you know, as you, as you're discussing uh, your story, you know, when, uh, when uh, I was finishing high school, I realized that, you know, I likely wanted to go to medical school and become a doctor. And at the time I thought that eight years was a whole lot of schooling before I could really take care of patients and, and be involved in, in that type of type of care. Uh, and I saw EMS as a way that I could get involved now, essentially, and uh, uh, and really, uh, you know, fuel my ability to, you know, to provide hands-on care to people uh, all through my schooling. Uh, interestingly, it ended up being the, you know, the passion that I continued uh, as a physician. So I consider myself now a, a paramedic that gets to be a doctor and, you know, continue to uh, be a nationally registered paramedic because uh, it's an important part of who I am. When you were in medical school, was your path emergency medicine or were you considering other specialties? I, lar- I very closely uh, migrated to emergency medicine. Uh, I recall the first day that I went to shadow in the emergency department before I did an official rotation there. I just felt at home. Uh, it was uh, my kind of people, my kind of thinking, uh, my kind of environment. Uh, it, uh, it felt comfortable. Uh, and was type of work that I wanted to do um, uh, as a physician working in the emergency department. Uh, and then, you know, that is the uh, piece that I get to meld with uh, what I do out of the hospital. And how did you choose Pittsburgh? Pittsburgh has a phenomenal uh, system for uh, EMS medicine, uh, whether it's within the city, city of Pittsburgh, Borough of EMS, the EMS agencies surrounding Pittsburgh uh, are uh, great and phenomenal partners. Uh, we at UPMC have a, a phenomenal division of EMS with uh, a couple of dozen physicians that are uh, EMS physicians and emergency physicians with great expertise in EMS. Uh, and we do a lot of activities that uh, work uh, with uh, all of our EMS partners and other types of activities like uh, ground-based medical support for uh, airlines uh, that help us be uh, experts in our hospital care and help us uh, practice medicine uh, in that type of an emergency setting. What got you interested in the in the, the in-flight emergencies? And let's let's talk about before you tell us that, and then can you tell us a little bit about the history about in-flight emergencies before it's become much more modern and with especially with their emergency kits, etc. Yeah. So um, going back uh, a few decades. Uh, was a different uh, era in terms of the management and flight uh, medical emergencies. But at one point, airlines began to have more close support from physicians on the ground uh, that uh, became experts in being able to assist with in-flight medical emergencies. Uh, UPMC ended up being uh, one of those places that uh, became uh, a, a specialty site to be able to help. Uh, commercial airlines uh, handle uh, not only in-flight emergencies, but things like uh, screening passengers at a gate when there's a concern about a medical problem, uh, making decisions about if it's uh, safe to board an airplane, or uh, certainly we have a a very active critical care transport service. And so we make decisions about safety of transport and and other type of uh, uh, out-of-hospital questions very actively. And so UPMC became involved with uh, certain airlines uh, very early and uh, uh, established those relationships with now 
uh, about 20 commercial airlines that are national and international. Uh, and we provide uh, medical direction for uh, approximately 20,000 uh, consults a year, uh, where we provide a physician to uh, uh, provide uh, their expertise on handling these events. And those are largely in-flight medical emergencies and also uh, gate screenings, other questions that airlines have uh, with regard to their passengers. How about some of the numbers? Uh, so when, when did you first get involved uh, with the in-flight component? And can you, can you give us some numbers like over the last couple of years and how many consults you do uh, over the last couple of years? I completed an EMS fellowship here uh, at uh, UPMC uh, between 2008 and 2010. Uh, by then, uh, our department was well-established in working with airlines providing medical consultations uh, from flight emergencies. So one of the core activities that I did as a fellow, as our EMS fellows do currently, is working in our medical communications center where we handle uh, tens of thousands of uh, physician consults for uh, paramedics on the ground, uh, our uh, flight crews uh, in our large uh, air medical transport system, and also all of these commercial airlines that we partner with. Uh, so as a fellow, I got to begin my involvement uh, with uh, providing uh, medical consultation for in-flight medical emergencies, and it's something that I've uh, continued to do and now help to teach other physicians uh, that become experts in uh, doing this through our uh, EMS fellowship and, and within our division of EMS. Well, walk us through the process. I mean, I have handled uh, a couple and one in-flight emergency and then one cardiac arrest back at the old Pittsburgh International Airport. Can you walk us through the process of uh, what happens uh, if there's an in-flight emergency? Yeah, so imagine that somebody suddenly has chest pain aboard a uh, commercial aircraft. Uh, they're going to alert another passenger or themselves alert the uh, flight crew. Uh, the flight crew member is then going to notify the captain the aircraft and uh, specify that there's uh, an in-flight medical emergency uh, and they begin activating their processes. The captain uh, or co-pilot of the aircraft is going to then uh, contact uh, a communication center uh, that is available uh, through a radio uh, frequency or through satellite communications to get in touch both with a ground-based medical support system such as ours at UPMC as well as with their own dispatch center. When they contact our communications center, they're going to be uh, uh, directly patched in uh, both with a communication specialist uh, that coordinates the medical uh, communication for us, as well as with a physician that we have available uh, almost immediately uh, to be able to uh, speak with the captain on board uh, and start gathering information. While that's happening, which is able to all be linked up within a couple of minutes, uh, we are uh, now often engaging with the uh, captain or co-pilot of that uh, aircraft and at times can be patched in through a radio headset to the flight crew in the back uh, who may be directly interacting with the passenger or any volunteer healthcare providers that may have you know, raised their hand and rendered assistance there. And so we gather some information, as you would imagine, occurs through a radio patch or through a satellite communication. Uh, we do engage in a bit of uh, telephone in terms of asking a series of questions that get passed on to the folks that are in the back and then get passed on to us. So it does require a little bit of knowledge and skill to ask the right questions, uh, get the key information that we want and certainly not tie up the conversation with uh, information that is unnecessary. 
And so we quickly assess the situation, figure out the, the key questions and concerns that we may need to think about, uh, and provide guidance, whether it's about the medical care that might be delivered on board, uh, which may be simple interventions like hydration, laying the person down, raising the legs, uh, things that we would do for, for you know, syncope or feeling lightheaded, uh, to using contents from the onboard medical kit. Uh, and ultimately, one of the biggest questions that we help the airlines with is when there is consideration for diverting the aircraft, uh, we help provide expertise on when that is most likely to be of benefit to the passenger in question uh, and where that you know, could, uh, could potentially be necessary. Uh, so uh, in summary, somebody raised a concern, the flight crew contacts the captain, they contact us. There's a lot of people on the line as we uh, ask questions, figure things out, and fairly quickly we're able to provide recommendations to the crew. My in-flight emergency was uh, over the Pacific Ocean on the way to Hawaii, and I remember the flight attendants going on, through a doctor on board. They didn't say medical professional, because this is 30 plus years ago. The, nobody raised their hand. My wife was sleeping. We are going on our honeymoon. So I look around, and they ask again. So I got up and said, well, I'm a paramedic. And you know, next thing you know, I'm taking care of the patient. And you know, she was fine, but the, she kept, uh, the flight attendant kept whispering in my ear, do you want the kit, do you want the kit, do you want the kit? And back then, I said, well, what's in the kit? And she said, uh, blood pressure cuff and a stethoscope. That's all they had. Uh, and I said, no, I think we'll, we'll be fine. Today, you know, when I read your article, and that's, when, that's how we got in touch, I read, you wrote an article. To me, flight emergencies, and since I'm also in the travel business, I'm flying more now and everything. So it's good to, I also know that some kids are much more, have, have much more equipment and much more medications than they did way back when. The question I'm getting to is, all right, so we got somebody who's got chest pain. Um, what's the liability of a paramedic who is, you know, over the Pacific Ocean or the Atlantic Ocean for those East Coasters, uh, uh, what's the liability of me, you know, popping a line into somebody, giving them some nitro, giving them some aspirin, whatever it may be? Uh, what's the liability on the provider? Because I don't yeah, have command so, from you. Correct. So, uh, fortunately, uh, in the United States, there's the Aviation Medical Assistance Act of 1998, which provides a Good Samaritan provision that specifies that volunteer healthcare personnel. Uh, that help aboard a commercial airline are protected as good Samaritans uh, to the, you know, unless they perform gross negligence. Uh, and in fact, the corollary to that is that it also protects the airlines from accepting the, the assistance of volunteer healthcare professionals in good faith. Uh, now, what the benefit, one of the benefits of ground-based medical support is one, we provide expertise from handling thousands of in-flight medical emergencies, uh, as each of us has done individually. Uh, and uh, we're able to provide guidance on, on when certain medications would likely be of benefit. And specifically, we know the contents of the medical kit of each individual airline. And so we can direct somebody to say, go to the blue pouch of the medical kit and obtain that nitroglycerin and the aspirin tablets and administer this specifically. And in five minutes, you're going to we're able to provide guidance to help. Now, we may find that on board, there is a healthcare provider with phenomenal expertise. In fact, we love to hear when there's a paramedic on board because they are experts at uh, figuring out things quickly with limited information and working in an environment where you have limited resources. That's exactly what we're describing here at 30 to 40,000 feet up in the air. Uh, and, and those are folks that 
uh, have a defined uh, knowledge base uh, that we work with all the time and that can really do a, a quick assessment of somebody and communicate the important things to us uh, through the flight crew, often or through the captain. Uh, and so, you know, we can partner and say, you know, this is what our recommendation would be uh, and then help uh, in all of that uh, assistance uh, in terms of the care provided by a healthcare provider uh, is protected uh, through that Good Samaritan provision. Now, I know it probably costs the airlines a lot of money if you have to divert, if they have to land somewhere else besides their schedule. And I'm sure that plays somewhat of a factor, or does it not play a factor? There are many factors that play into a decision about uh, diversion. The first and foremost, both uh, for us providing gravity medical support and the airline, is the safety of that passenger. That is uh, front foremost and most important for us to consider. Uh, the reality is that, uh, yes, there's a cost to diversion, but there are also many other considerations. And in fact, the passenger having an onboard emergency who is trying to fly from the East Coast to the West Coast may not themselves want to be dropped off in Kansas. Uh, so sometimes, in fact, we engage in a shared medical decision-making conversation about the risks of continuing on, and, uh, and uh, certainly we want to make sure that we provide the right guidance uh, and, and involve everybody involved with that. Uh, there are cases that are black and white. Uh, simply, you need, you're, you're several hours from your destination. person needs immediate medical assistance, uh, and uh, you're going to divert to the closest appropriate destination. Uh, other cases, you know, we have the opportunity to provide interventions in route, see how things are going. If you're flying across the United States, there are many options to land. Uh, and so, you know, we may be able to provide some uh, simple interventions, check back with the crew, see how the passenger's doing uh, in, a, in assist in, in preventing the diversion that, you know, is really going to be in the best interest of the passenger, uh, everybody else on board that aircraft and, you know, the airline as well. How the kits, and we've talked a little bit about the kits, how they improved over the last maybe five or ten years? How, how have they improved? The, the Federal Aviation Administration currently has specific requirements for the contents of the onboard emergency medical kit for all commercial airlines in the United States. So they have defined what the minimum content of those kits uh, needs to be. Uh, that content has not been updated in the past uh, uh, five to ten years. Um, but it has had some revisions over the past few decades uh, to provide what is it essentially the key medications and equipment that you would need to be able to handle most in-flight medical emergencies. Now, there are certain things that have not been required to be carried on those uh, in those kits by the current FAA standards. Uh, and airlines over the past several years in particular have supplemented their medical kits with specific uh, uh, medical equipment that would be uh, potential uh, help in those situations. We have to be mindful that commercial airlines are not ambulances, so it would not be the most reasonable uh, to think of a typical uh, airline having uh, all of the medical equipment you would expect in an ambulance or at a hospital. Uh, we have to think about uh, weight uh, and uh, likely use of any uh, piece of equipment or, or um, medication. Uh, but airlines have, uh, some airlines have added things like an anti-emetic that is not required to be contained in the kit, a glucometer, a pulse oximeter. Uh, these are uh, things that are commonly used uh, or available from a fellow passenger uh, or that are now available uh, among certain airlines.
how does the airline know that I'm a paramedic or there's a physician or a nurse? I mean, uh, I just heard a story last week where somebody who's a RN uh, and the, I guess, didn't have the credential, whatever it may be, the airline personnel would not let them touch the patient. This varies by airline and their specific policies. Uh, some uh, airlines may have policies where they would uh, at least ask for a medical credential of a, of a healthcare volunteer on board with the intent to ensure the safety of anybody that they're uh, helping. Uh, but that is not typically a requirement to be able to render assistance aboard most airlines. Um, the way that we may help to mitigate any risk uh, that may be uh, the healthcare provider uh, doesn't have experience working with that medical condition or in that environment uh, is the concept of ground-based medical support with experts on the ground that handle a high volume of in-flight emergencies. So when a healthcare provider is on board, an airline may uh, contact ground-based medical support uh, at the same time that a medical kit is offered. Uh, and when a certain intervention is suggested to be provided to the passenger, that's something that uh, we would help to uh, review and make sure that we're all in uh, all on the same page with providing that intervention. So the airline is able to take the expertise and, and hands-on care of a healthcare provider in that aircraft uh, and the knowledge uh, and experience of the folks on the ground to make sure that together we're providing the best care for the patient. All right, I'm ready to board my flight and you get a consult uh, from the gate agent or from the, the airline. And can you give us an example of one and maybe give us an outcome and you know, what the decision-making to allow somebody board? Uh, imagine that somebody was waiting uh, at the gate uh, for their flight and passed out. Uh, they had a brief loss of consciousness. There was no trauma. Uh, they wake up within a minute uh, and they go back to a normal mental status. Uh, certainly that's going to be alarming for the passenger themselves, their family, whoever they're traveling with, as well as the gate agent and the airline. And it's everybody's interest uh, that if that passenger gets on that aircraft, it's going to be safe, that it is reasonable, uh, or that anybody might have a question, does that person need to go to a hospital? So in that circumstance, a gate agent would, uh, through the airline, contact us uh, and uh, we would uh, help uh, get uh, key information. Uh, you could imagine that the story is uh, one of two ways. That could be a healthy 18-year-old who uh, had uh, just given a story of uh, being dehydrated because they've been uh, on their third flight and they haven't eaten or drank much uh, over that time and they had a brief loss of consciousness. They have no medical problems at all. They don't take any medications. They're uh, drinking water as we speak and getting something to eat and they feel completely fine. Uh, in some of those cases, uh, 911 may be called or there's a, uh, an, an EMS team uh, in that airport that has checked their vital signs, done a 12-lady KG, everything checks out. Uh, that person would be fine, uh, most likely, to be able to fly. Now, another story may be that it's a 60-year-old with chest pain uh, preceding the syncope that has an extensive past medical history. And uh, you could get into a whole other uh, set of details where suddenly it's probably not the best thing for that person to now immediately get on a flight that's going to be six hours uh, and where if something else happened, it's going to be a very difficult situation. Uh, in that case, we might suggest that they uh, seek medical attention and often the airline may be able to 
uh, after you know a further medical assessment, get them on a later flight uh, and be able to get them where they're going. Um, but we're going to help that airline uh, make a determination. And in fact, uh, we're helping the passenger make the best decision for themselves about you know when when it would be reasonable for them uh, to be able to to fly. You handle uh, I think would you say ten or twenty thousand consults a year. For that, what were the numbers? And the second half of that question is. What's the number one consult or chief complaint that you received in your communication center for a consult uh, from an in-flight emergency? Yeah, we've had the opportunity to work with a variety of airlines that has varied over the years. And so the number of uh, emergencies uh, that we've handled certainly has varied because of that. Um, but we noted before uh, the COVID pandemic, certainly air travel was uh, much more frequent uh, than uh, it happened during the pandemic. So. Uh, we certainly um, noticed a decrease in flights that happened uh, because of the pandemic that has now uh, gone uh, back up substantially. Uh, and so, you know, the, there have been normal ebbs and flows in uh, flight volume, and that just directly correlates with the number of uh, in-flight emergencies that occur. Second part of that question is, what's the number one, uh, what's the number one or number two cause for the consult or in-flight emergency? Yeah, so we looked at our own data and published that in the New England Journal, where we looked at almost 12,000 in-flight emergencies that we uh, were consulted on across five uh, commercial airlines. Uh, and then I also had the opportunity to uh, work with my colleagues to publish a review of uh, managing in-flight emergencies in JAMA. Uh, for that, we actually reviewed uh, all the publications we could find uh, to date uh, and summarized those. Uh, all of that uh, data uh, identifies that syncope or near syncope is the most common in-flight emergency. In our data, we found that it was almost 60% of our consults, uh, particularly with U.S.-based airlines, uh, where we are often called for somebody feeling lightheaded, like they're going to pass out or actually pass out. Uh, we think that may be due to a variety of things. Uh, it is often that people aren't eating and drinking like they would normally, particularly if they're going on long flights, they're going on multiple flights, uh, they're traveling you know, long distances. Uh, there are pressure changes that happen that have been suggested to possibly be involved with things like vasodilation uh, as, uh, as pressure decreases. Uh, there is a decrease in uh, the content of oxygen at uh, altitude uh, because the uh, airliners uh, typically have a cabin pressure of the equivalent of six to 8,000 feet. Uh, and so there can be a decrease uh, oxygen or there will be a decrease oxygen content uh, in the air that is not noticed by most people, but could impact certain other people. Um, so most commonly we see syncope or near syncope. Uh, other common complaints are cardiovascular type complaints like chest pain, shortness of breath, uh, and uh, gastrointestinal illnesses like uh, nausea, vomiting, or diarrhea uh, could be uh, fairly common as well. What would you like to see changed uh... Uh, I guess in the, either in the kits or in flight emergencies and how they're handled today. Yeah, I know that one of the things that we certainly uh, promote is to uh, make sure that if uh, your uh, volunteer healthcare provider on board or the flight crew of an airline, that you take the opportunity to contact the ground-based medical support service so that we can all partner together in providing the best recommendations. So uh, that happens most of the time. Uh, uh, certainly, there's some uh, in-flight emergencies that are handled just uh, with a crew on board or uh, anybody that volunteers. So there continues to be opportunities for us to, to partner in, in being able to um, provide recommendations to, to those on board. Uh, one of the things that we created with our publication in JAMA was a series of cards 
uh, for uh, how to handle uh, in-flight medical emergencies that can be uh, carried by any uh, you know potential healthcare volunteer when they're uh, flying aboard an aircraft. And some airlines have actually taken those and placed them within their medical kits so that somebody could see a simple card of if I see somebody that's syncopized on an airline, what should I focus on? What are the key things that I want to think about? Same thing with chest pain or GI illness or, you know, uh, even a cardiac arrest. Um, many of these things will be things that, a you know, a healthcare provider like a paramedic would uh, easily uh, be able to, you know, address with their uh, knowledge. Um, but it does uh, make you think about certain things uh, that are that are or are not available uh, on an airline, uh, and certainly that consideration uh, for consulting the folks on the ground when something like a diversion might be indicated or where um, you know where the contents of the medical kit may be used. There are certainly opportunities for improving the medical kit. Uh, one of the things that uh, several commercial airlines have added, as I mentioned, was uh, the uh, addition of antiemetics, which can be particularly helpful. Um, uh, being able to have a glucometer or a finger pulse oximeter are two pieces of medical equipment that are relatively small and lightweight. Uh, it could potentially be uh, helpful, uh, you know, to handle uh, several emergencies. And how about the AED with a monitor component too? It would be nice versus just uh, the standard AED with no monitor capability. At least that would give the healthcare provider that's trained at least the if there was uh, some ST elevation, they'd be able to hopefully see it. All right, so let's have some fun right here before we end this podcast. What's your favorite movie? Goodwill Hunting. Why? I like uh, individuals that have to face adversity and uh, are smart about it. Where do you like to go on vacation? Spain or Virginia, uh, where my family. And if you could have lunch with anybody in the world, uh, live or dead, who would it be and why? Ron Stewart, when he was creating the Center for Emergency Medicine, mm -hmm. uh, he is uh, well and alive, but uh, yep. uh, talk to him as he was uh, creating uh, our, uh, our department at the time uh, in helping uh, build uh, EMS in Pittsburgh uh, would, have been a, would have been a unique experience. Uh, you can go back and listen to my podcast with him. And actually, you know, Ron and Walt hired me to help teach at the center. Yeah, if we put... Uh, uh, if we put Peter Saffer, uh, Nancy Caroline, and yep. Ron Stewart at a table having lunch together, uh, that'd be a very interesting conversation uh, and really uh, is uh, a, lot, a lot to say for thinking that uh, the whole concept of paramedicine uh, is, in, in, uh, is a thing and, uh, and that uh, having a, a unique set of skilled individuals in the honor hospital setting providing care that we deliver in the hospital uh, was at the time the way of the future and is uh, what we get to enjoy now. Uh, so that, that would have been fun. Well, Chris, I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for joining me on my podcast. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 